January 6th committee hearings, gun control in Congress, and Pat Loyola. I'm Lawrence Aikens. This is The Square Circle. Hello and welcome to The Square Circle. I am your host, Lawrence Akins. Join us today are Libertarian and Florida Attorney, Addison Hosner, Conservative Editor of the College Fix, Jennifer Cabany, and Progressive Political Reporter, James Rosen. Welcome everyone. This week, literally right as we're recording this episode, the January 6th committee is about to begin its first public hearing on the events of the US Capitol on January 6th. This episode won't air until the first hearing is complete, but Jennifer, what are you expecting from the hearing? Well, I expect the Democrats to paint a very one-sided and biased picture. I expect that they will use this national stage to try and gain favor among voters, to rile them up as best they can against Republicans and former President Trump. And you know, consider the term hearings is really a misnomer. This is a show. They hired a fancy producer. They plan to use prepackaged video vignette, vignettes and emotional snippets to really paint an edited picture that attempts to portray January 6th as, as far more than what it was. It's a democratic campaign ad and their allies in the media are doing all they can to foist the show on the American people. But what I hope and expect is that it will fail. Uh, sure, the Democrats might get a ratings bunk among their own constituents, but this show will quickly fade out of the minds of most Americans as they worry much more about how they can't afford gas to fill their tanks and drive to work, how their grocery bills have doubled, how their 401ks are shrinking, and the lawlessness and violence in our cities and streets are taking over. So uh, it'll be a flash in the pan, uh, and I don't think it'll have any real long-term impact uh, to help the Democrats this November. Jennifer, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, okay. James, you always put me in the hot seat. Would, would they have had to burn the Capitol to the ground and kill a thousand police officers for you to say that it was a serious event? And, 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 and if you won't call it an insurrection, what, 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 give me your word. I'll choose any word or hear any word that you say. What, give me one word for what happened that day. I call it an insurrection, but okay. you don't accept that. What, what do you call it? Well, I definitely think there were criminal acts involved on that day. Certainly there were there was actions that rose to the level of criminal acts. And, and they're being prosecuted, okay. Right, so um, I definitely think that this is a serious topic and we can look it over, but the committee itself has been turned into a partisan ploy. Isn't that because Republicans, except for two in the entire Congress, refused to serve on it? Or, you know, on the flip side, McCarthy held a hearing that he alleges that the Republicans were kept off of the committee. So, <laughs> well, if you believe Kevin McCarthy, I've got to. Well, a if you believe Nancy Pelosi, I got to. <laughs> I believe that is the. Uh third party libertarian in the room, if I may, um, yes, please, an attorney, uh, I, I don't consider the demonstrative exhibits to be 
use it as a ploy. In court, I typically bring in footage that supports my <laughs> argument, my contention, whether that be a graph, a chart, a video, an audio recording. In this case, these are probably footage that is taken directly from the event itself. It's not a fabrication. It happened. So my big to do with the hearings is getting to the bottom of this, simply getting truth. I could care less about the partisan politics on either of your sides, okay? What bothers me as an American is that there was a group of individuals who may have incited a larger group of individuals to create this travesty on January 6th. I remember being at my desk preparing for a court hearing, jaw to the floor, could not concentrate because of what I was witnessing. For me, I'm very interested in just determining what is the involvement of potentially Jenny Thomas, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife. There's been some talks of her text messages and where does that lead and how that might incite the Supreme Court Justice himself. Uh, what's the rabbit hole? Who knew what? Who was sending what? And at the end of it all, I think it's unlikely to sway people on the left to further get on the left or sway those on the right, very much like yourself, Jennifer, from, from leaving that position. And that's okay with me. What I care about is the truth and the precedent that this will set moving forward for when things like this happens. Are there consequences for actions? Can you say certain things that incite people to do things and be completely absconded of any liability? It doesn't matter to me the result. What matters is the truth and fact-finding expedition. And we get to the bottom of it. And hopefully as Americans put this behind us, that's what should be the main focus here is just getting to the bottom of it. But if you go into it with a partisan mindset and you automatically discount what's being presented, that is to me an obstruction of justice. You're not allowing the system to work. And if you think that the committees are all just partisan hacks, well, then why are we even doing this? Why even have a democracy? Let's just break off into two countries and have the right and the left, because we're clearly not going to be interested in determining what is truth based upon the principles and foundations we have afforded to us by our constitution. So that's my position on it. And that's my say, you guys can go back at it. I couldn't have said it better. All right, well, I'll respond. Addison, to your point, it's almost like we're having a trial and the only people that get to present are the prosecution, but not the defense. Is that a fair trial? And as far as the, the exhibits go, I'm fine with all exhibits, but are they gonna show the videos of the cops waving the people in and opening the doors up too? I mean, all I'm saying is, is it's gonna be a fair trial. Are they gonna show both sides? I I'm predicting confidently, people, I'm no. Sure they also are gonna be fall to liability. <laughs> for not upholding their duty. I think to me, that's part of the investigation. I am interested in all sides of this. And if, if what you're saying is, again, that no one's gonna be able to testify or, or plead a defense, I think that's been, you know, that's the point of the hearing. Those questions- It's not a hearing. The they literally have pre-recorded some of this stuff. They hired a fancy producer. That um, is what we do in, in court. They're we, airing we it on prime forward. time, you know. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on here. Watch it for yourself and you can decide. And, and again, we're, we're talking about this beforehand, but again, just to use your trial analogy, this is the prosecution's show and a very little fair defense is going to be allowed to exhibit, to display their evidence is my prediction. What, what is the fair defense? Is there a fair defense? Well, I think, I think that um, the, I have seen that the majority of people there that did not breach the Capitol are, are all being lumped in with this. And, and we're, we're kind of forgetting that there was a lot of people there that did not go in, that, that stayed outside or never even went to the Capitol that had been in kind of like 
uh, called names and, and, you know, uh, ad hominem attacks against them. And they were just there trying to defend election integrity. And so for the, for the 5% of the people there that did breach the Capitol. And as I said, there was some criminal activity. Sure. They should be held accountable. I don't think they should be held in a jail, uh, without charge being charged for over a year as an attorney, Addison, I hope you can appreciate that too. But, um, you know, what I, what I'm trying to say is that it was serious. This is a good topic, but I don't think the way it's being presented now is traditionally how hearings have been held in Congress. I think it's kind of been uh, taken over, absconded as as a politician, a political attempt to you know gain favor among the Democrats and help you know help them for the midterms, which is going to be dismal for them. Jennifer, I, what would be your resolution? To what? I mean, you say it's not fair and I'm not taking sides. I, justice should be served, but how do you think they should approach? Well, you know, um, the hearings when we had Trump's impeachment seemed like they had a better chance of airing both sides and, and the Republicans had a chance to ask their questions and, and make their statements and prove their points and have their displays. So, um, and that seems much more fitting and suitable for, for Congress. Um, that you know, the daytime at the table, both Democrats and Republicans side by side, asking questions, having their turn, having their time allotment. Not a nighttime, primetime NBC produced, you know, pre-recorded, you know, show. Well, why would you rather not be transparent to the American people? Again, I think a, a committee hearing as it's traditionally understood, would be far more transparent than what's going to be on display tonight. Do you think the, Senate, the, Watergate, the Watergate hearings were necessary? Those were televised. <laughs> I was but, like three. I'm so, I don't well, remember. Well, well you, I know, but you know about them. I mean, I'm sure you know about them. I, I was, the most recent example I can think of is when, you know, uh, the, you know, any committee hearing that we see all day long where people go up, they testify, they give a statement, and then the Republicans have a chance to answer questions. The Democrats have a chance to ask their questions. And we all get to hear the whole thing like a real trial, Addison, where everybody gets a chance to ask questions, to make their points, and to walk away with decisions. But the Republicans were given, were offered to be on that committee. All of them could have been on that committee. And the reason they chose not to is because it's indefensible. And they did not want to be in a position of defending or appearing to defend the indefensible. That's why they're not on that committee. So the opportunity was available, but for political reasons, they chose not to. I mean, that's the reality of it. Okay. For, from what I understand um, from you know, Leader McCarthy's comments that they were blocked and stymied and... Uh, you know, I, I, you can believe Nancy, I can believe Kevin and, and we can go on. I, mean, I believe Adam, I believe, I believe Liz Cheney and what she said about it. I believe Adam Kuziger. Well, Liz, Liz Cheney's about to, to, to register as a Democrat at this point. So I don't know. The one parallel with this maybe is uh, the Benghazi hearings. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I believe that was also a select committee. I'm not sure I'm right on this. But I do know that only Republicans participated in that. Those were hearings that uh, focused on then Secretary of State Clinton's role in the attack on the US consulate. It was not a, an embassy uh, in Benghazi. And Democrats, uh, as I recall, refused to participate in that. 
uh, because they said it was a circus and a show. So, I mean, you know, there is precedent uh, for that, for this kind of behavior. I would argue that, um, you know, four um, people or five, you know, a, a small group of people attacking uh, a, a small consulate in a foreign country is uh, on a different level than uh, a lot more people attacking the United States Capitol. Well, um, because of time, we will move on to our next topic. Uh, and this week, the House of Representatives passed a sweeping gun control legislation. And here's the coverage from CGTN. The U.S. House of Representatives has uh, passed a sweeping gun control package, which raises the minimum age to purchase semi-automatic weapons to 21. But that bill faces long odds in the Senate, where bipartisan negotiations continue on more modest gun safety measures. Lawmakers heard testimony from victims, family members and first responders impacted by last month's mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. Um, Addison, what would you, what do you think will happen next as a, this legislation approaches the Senate? Right. So obviously there's a lot of noise on both sides of the aisle about gun regulation, gun control. As a classical liberal libertarian, of course, I like to fight for individual freedoms and rights. Uh, something like this, though, it's very near and dear to us down here in Florida after we had uh, the Douglas shooting back in, I believe, 2016-17, the Pulse nightclub here in my hometown, where I'm currently living in Orlando. And at that time, uh, Rick Scott actually passed legislation in Florida that would raise the minimum age to purchase of, of firearms to uh, 21, 18 to 21. And now he's combating that same uh, type of bill in, in Congress as a senator. Um, the bill that was recently passed was very partisan. Only, I believe, you have five Republicans ended up voting for it, and that's expected. It simply would raise the minimum age from 18 to 21 to buy semi-automatic weapons, as well as create some new crackdowns on trafficking, as well as large uh, capacity magazines. Uh, I don't think this is going to make it through the Senate unless there is a massive change in precedent with Republican voters flipping. Um, but I do, I am encouraged to at least see something uh, making it on the House floor. For me, I would just really like to see uh, this type of issue stop becoming a partisan one. We've watched way too many shootings occur, not just since uh, school shootings in Uvalade, but, you know, Buffalo. And then since then, I swear, every time I turn on the news, there's something happening. Now, do guns kill people in and of themselves? No, it's the users. And if this is a mental health issue, well, then we should be applying more legislation on background checks and mental health checks in these individuals. I equate gun legislation to pieces of Swiss cheese. We are never going to get a piece of American cheese that completely covers your bread. No. We're going to get Swiss cheese that has holes in it. But if you pass bill by bill that creates smaller and smaller restrictions that are not meant to curtail your ability to own firearms, but simply to do so more responsibly, we can see if those would have effect. And eventually you put enough pieces of Swiss cheese down, all the holes will be covered and you have a, a complete package. Uh, so no, I don't see this going anywhere as far as the Senate vote goes. Um, and I, I wish this would incur something, maybe perhaps just the trafficking uh, portion and the large magazine portion can get through and we can determine the age. But um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a sticky subject and one I wish wasn't um, diluted in partisan politics, especially with deaths of young individuals who, you know, on otherwise we're going to have summer vacation just a couple days later. James and Jennifer, would you like to weigh in? Uh, I agree with Addison in the sense that uh, it is unfortunate that every single time we have a horrible tragedy like this um, it, it immediately 
goes to gun control and this partisan, you know, bickering and it's heartbreaking. Um, this was a, an absolute tragedy and heart, just, just so gut-wrenching for the country. And I wish we could have just had a moment to heal before we started, you know, clawing at each other's throats on gun control. Um, this particular uh, legislation that was passed in the House, I agree, also agree with Addison, will not, will not really get through in the Senate. I, you know, I, as personally me, you know, Jennifer Cabani, I had a, I had a heart for some of the things that were passed. I didn't think they were that bad. Um, the, the age thing I'm, I'm, I can be moved on 21 is to drink, I think. So, you know, it's not unprecedented that we would save some, an age for 21. There's a little bit more maturity there. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, I do think that we should have a right. If there's somebody with a severe mental health issue that we could call the law enforcement and, and, and temporarily so it's just temporary. And I know this could be abused and I know it's a, it's a slippery slope, but if you have like the grandma could have called, um, this young man that did it in Uvalde and say, Hey, you know, my, my young, my young grandson is very disturbed. He's got these guns. Um, and you know, maybe law enforcement could have acted sooner. So I actually think there is room for, for, uh, solutions on, on the gun issue, as long as at the end of the day, they don't infringe on your right to keep and bear arms. Um, I think that's, that's the sticking point for conservatives and libertarians who are, you know, constitutionalists and traditionalists. And I will just say at the end, um, when we all know that, that schools are gun-free zones, that's the first, first place somebody that wants to cause mass damage is going to target, obviously. Gun-free zones don't work. They're illogical on their face. And underscoring that, the cities with the uh, strictest gun laws are also the ones with the most homicides and violence. Chicago, Baltimore, New York. So gun control doesn't really work. It's not the, it's not the law-abiding citizens. They, they're the ones that are going to follow the laws, the criminals that ignore any law you pass anyway. Gun-free zones don't work. You need to add in America. Gun-free zones work in virtually every other country in the world because the entire country in each case is a gun-free zone. The entire country in each case is a gun-free zone because we are literally the only civilized advanced, certainly the only civilized advanced democracy that doesn't have serious gun control laws. So to say that uh, gun-free zones don't work. You, you have to add, you have to add in America because we have no gun control laws. That's why they don't work. Um, if you leave that out, then you know it's a ridiculous statement. Um, I'm going to bring up two names: um, Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. Uh, of course, they're considered two of the greatest leaders, um, maybe in the history of West modern Western civilization, and they both took stands. Uh, that at one point in their tenures were considered unpopular. Abraham Lincoln, he did evolve on slavery, but he was, early, he was an early uh, opponent of slavery. Uh, and Winston Churchill, of course, famously was a very early opponent of Hitler when most other leaders in England and the British public thought that, that uh, they could negotiate with Hitler. Um, by today's standards in America, we were just talking about the fact that the House gun law doesn't have a chance in the Senate. Well, if you apply that logic in that, in that therefore the proponents of stronger gun control laws are politicizing the issue. If you apply that logic to Abraham Lincoln, he should have stopped advocating for the end of slavery when he was still uh, a state 
a state legislator, I believe, in Illinois. And Winston Churchill sort of stopped advocating for stand, the West standing up to Hitler uh, when he was a backbencher and nobody knew his name. So the fact that uh, legislation, even, even uh, or, or political stances, even uh, political stances that end up being historically significant at one point in time can't get through um, a cowardly United States Senate uh, doesn't mean that people who are pushing for it are politicizing the issue. Uh, they are on the right side of history sometimes. And I believe that there's going to come a time in this country, I don't know if it's 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 80 years from now, when historians of all stripes, liberal, conservative, moderate, libertarian, will look back on this period this long period of school shootings, the deaths of thousands of children, and they will say it was barbaric. It was barbaric. And it will be, it will be an across-the-board uniform verdict of all historians. This will be a period that is similar to how we now view the long slavery period when so many slaves suffered. There's no, there is no, there is no argument. Uh, there is no argument uh, on the other side if you if you take the long view of history. And finally, prosecutors in Michigan have decided to prosecute the Grand Rapids police officer in the death of Patrick Lyolia. And here's what the Kent County prosecutor Chris Becker had to say. I've made the decision to charge Christopher Schur with one count of second degree murder. Uh, second degree murder is a felony offense. It is punishable by up to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Um, as it stands now, this is merely an allegation, and as with any defendant, he is presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. The elements of secondary murder are relatively simple. First, there was a death, a death done by the defendant, and then when the killing occurred, the defendant had one of these three states of mind, an intent to kill, an intent to do great bodily harm, or the intent to do an act that the natural tendency of that act would be to cause death or great bodily harm. And finally, that the death was not justified or excused, for example, by self-defense. Taking a look at everything that I reviewed in this case, I believe there's a sufficient basis to proceed on a single count of second-degree murder, and that charge has been filed uh, with the courts as of today. Now to you, James. What is your take on all of this? Well, I mean, thank God for body cams and, 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 and you know, police car video cameras. Um, I mean, over the last, you know, some years, uh, there have been, there's been just chilling footage of unarmed fleeing uh, so-called suspects, most of them young men, most of them black, uh, being shot in the back uh, or being shot without offering any resistance. This was maybe the single worst example because what the video shows, let's go to the tape. What the video shows is that uh, the officer, um, Christopher Schur, was on top of Mr. Leolia, on top of him. And uh, not only was he defenseless, he was pinned down. Um, it, was, it, was, it was even worse than um, George Floyd. Am I remember his first name right? Yeah. Um, than the, the Floyd killing. Um, and he was shot, the video shows, he was shot in the head. It was, it was the kind of killing that, um, uh, that, that, that mafia bosses send their, um, 
their lieutenants out to do of mafia enemies. It was an execution, a gang style execution. And I think it's great that, uh, that uh, this grand jury in Grand Rapids, Michigan, my home state, came back with an indictment. Now, James, I, I, I respect every position you put forth, but I'm not sure if we watched the same footage um, from the very beginning. And, and I'll come out, the second degree murder charge, I think is appropriately being brought, but I don't think it's gonna stick. And here's why. Um, from the very start of the footage, you can see uh, Patrick uh, Leola um, be somewhat confrontational by getting out of the car, not getting back in the car. And at that right there is not a death sentence. Never should a cop take lethal action against someone who's simply not complying. Where it all goes downhill for me, though, is where he begins to shut the door and attempt to run. The officer has to tackle him to the ground and is routinely asking him to stop resisting, at which point he pulls out his taser, attempts to shoot Patrick, misses. And I believe he discharges it a second time, at which point Patrick grabs the officer's taser. At this point, I'm seeing self-defense start to creep into the picture because of that action alone. By the time he pulls out his handgun and shoots him in the back of the head, he has full possession of his taser on the ground and could have potentially turned it over his shoulder and shot the police officer. I wasn't the cop. I wasn't uh, officer sure. So I can't say if he would have felt endangered uh, to be overpowered by Patrick, but it should go without saying he was blowing a 0.29 in his autopsy, has three warrants for his arrest, was on probation and was driving on a revoked license for the third time. He recently had a domestic violence charge against his wife. The officer didn't know this at the time, yes. but these are elements that are going to be brought up to judge his character likely in the court hearing. The problem I have here is simply the resisting portion. Had he not reached for his taser, I think you can make a good case that self-defense with lethal force was not warranted. And I still think there's a chance to potentially get Officer Sure convicted if he can potentially prove that the taser, if firing two discharges, could not have fired again. So the officer would have known that that is a non-lethal weapon at that point because tasers can be proved lethal in the, in the wrong hands. Um, and additionally, did he think he reasonably could have held Patrick down while the additional squad cars arrive? And in the video, they don't arrive till 30 minutes, 30 seconds to about a minute after he shoots him. So those are two elements I would be highly interested in as the prosecutor and his defense team to prove whether or not self-defense here with lethal force was a viable option. The first two elements of second degree murder have been met. It's just that third one, if they can prove it. Um, so that's where I stand on the issue. I think it's a tragedy all around and I hate to see it happen. But I do think the reaching for the taser, that's what uh, is, is inevitably going to sink his case um, against Officer Sure. Yeah, I'm in agree agreement with Addison. If I could just say ditto, I'd probably just say that. But I, I did watch the video in preparation to discuss it. And I agree. I, he was like, get back in the car, get back in the car, get back in the car. The guy didn't get back in the car. He was like, do you have a license? You know, do you have a license? And it, it was it kept getting worse. Then the guy ran. He was like, you know, stop, please resist, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop, 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 you know, until the point where he did grab the officer's taser after the, the officer did try a non-lethal force at first. And um, I don't know what the, I, I was so upset when I saw the officer shoot him in the back of the head like that. Um, I, I heard it was described as execution style and it was very jarring and I couldn't help but think, oh, could he have done it in his arm or I don't know. It was very, very hard to watch. And, and my heart just kind of like took a gut punch um, at that point. But on the flip side, as Addison said, what is he supposed to do? He's been now struggling with this, this um, suspect for over two minutes. The suspect has not complied with any of his 
of his demands. Now he's got the gut, the gut, the cops taser. So what, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the officer was supposed to do because he felt like his life was in danger. Uh, I think you both raise uh, good, narrow technical points. And, and as Addison said, the grabbing the taser may well get, uh, get the officer off. Um, you know, I chaired uh, the indictment, but I lived in the Soviet Union uh, in the bad old days, which had returned. Um, and, you know, we don't live in a police state. And police are, are trained, and I've covered this extensively, extensively for years. They are trained in how to de-escalate de encounters with everyone from a motorist to someone who might be breaking into a house. Okay, how to de-escalate. What we saw on that tape was the opposite. We saw, yes, we saw resistance to arrest, but I'll be honest, if I was a young black man in this country, knowing how many blacks who were not resisting, who were fleeing, who were shot in the back by police. If I was in his position, I'm not sure I would comply. I'm not sure I wouldn't be afraid to just get in the car or do whatever this guy said. He might still have been shot. So, um, uh, you know, I think that, yes, he grabbed his taser, but he was freaked out because by that point, the officer had broken every rule of training that he should have gotten and maybe did get in de-escalating uh, in de-escalating these situations. Let's not forget, this was a, a car stop. This was, and, and he didn't know as, I, I can't remember if it was Addison or Jennifer, he didn't know the, 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 the parts of this guy's background, you know, the, you know, the problems he'd had in the past and his record and so forth. And the fact that he was, you know, he, he, he blew a high level of alcohol. He didn't know any of that when he stopped them. This was a routine car stop. And blacks have been killed in those circumstances in the last few years during a routine car stop. So to say that he, that the, that the onus was on Mr. Leoya to just follow every rule and the police officer should not have followed his training and his rules of de-escalation. Again, I think that's one-sided. However, uh, Addison might, you know, might make a good, again, legal narrow point that, uh, that uh, Loyola grabbing the taser, um, you know, might get, uh, might get officer sure off, but he will, he will, he will never be an officer again. I don't believe. Okay. Well, let's move on to the most unreported story this week. Uh, Jennifer, do you mind going first? I don't mind. Well, this should not be the most underreported story of the week, but it is um, considering the severity of it. And that is that a, an armed, heavily armed man was arrested on his way to assassinate a Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I'm, I read that the New York Times put the story on A20. You know, so <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. Uh, the, the point is, it's that's pretty serious when when somebody's uh, you know, literally caught red handed on their way to assassinate, assassinate a Supreme Court justice. Um, gosh, it just speaks to the divisiveness that our, our nation is facing. And um, I hope that we can come together as a country and agree to disagree on some of these things um, and still remember um, that we are, are one nation united. Um, and you hate to see these kind of stories, um, or in this case, buried stories, um, taking shape in this country right now. Addison. 
Sure. Um, I always come on and give you uh, a legal <laughs> case as an unreported story because no one likes reading legalese except for a few of us deranged individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a, a verdict that came out very recently uh, in a case called Egbert v. Boole. It was a 6-3 decision. Uh, it goes against the precedent of a 1971 case uh, called Bivens, which allows federal officers to be sued for damages if they violate constitutional rights of individuals. Uh, this case simply decides now that Custom and Border Patrol agents uh, no longer are under that threat. They've abolished that ability to sue those federal officials for damages. State officials, like your sheriff's department, are still liable in civil suits, but you know, qualified immunity makes that a whole other discussion as well. But I think this is a somewhat dangerous decision, the precedent that this could potentially lead to of absolving uh, federal officials of liability for violation of constitutional rights. I mean, we're talking about the shooting that just happened in, in Michigan and, um, you know, the civil suit on that side, which will likely follow. I'm assuming qualified immunity will kick in. But when it comes to federal officials, I think federal government is especially where we need to keep our held accountable for their actions, because if you really leave liability for your constitutional violations, um, you're just letting go of your constitutional rights. And to me, that's terrifying. And James. Uh, there's a new study, I believe it's out of uh, Britain, that shows something that made my jaw drop, which is that... Um, car tires, the particles, the the microscopic, maybe um, invisible particles that are released by tires as we drive cause, and now, you know, get ready for this, 2,000 times more air pollution than does does the, uh, do the particles that come out of the tailpipes of cars. Not 2,000 times. That's an astounding statistic. I think part of that, and even if it's exaggerated tenfold, uh, let's say it's 200. Am I right on that? 200 times? Yes. Uh, you know, then it, let's say it's 200 times. It's still astounding. I think that speaks partly to uh, the success of, um, of air quality control uh, laws, which have greatly improved the, um, uh, uh, the uh, lessened the amount of pollution that comes out of combustible engines and cars, that's thanks to the Clean Air Act of 1971-72 and other uh, subsequent modifications, which by the way, most conservatives oppose. I'm just gonna say that it's a matter of historical record. Um, uh, So those laws and the regulations implementing them, I guess have been, not I guess, have been enormously successful at reducing the, the air pollution that comes out of tailpipes of cars, uh, but there are virtually no regulations, according to this study, uh, in in developed countries, that govern uh, uh, pollution from moving tires because no one knew they caused this kind of pollution. So get ready for new regulations and new laws in that area. You want to hear a fun fact about your your underreported story? Sure. The number one culprit of this this tire emissions problem are Teslas because they're so much heavier than uh, gas-fueled cars that they're shoving off more pollution into the air from their tires because the, the batteries in Teslas are so heavy. So the, the batteries weigh the Tesla down and then Tesla is like the worst culprit of this air pollution. So I hope I didn't break your heart there, but- I'm not no, actually- no, you didn't break my heart, but I mean, you know, what Teslas are what, 5%? I mean, I mean, it's fascinating. I, this study did say that today's cars are heavier and, and that supports not just Teslas, that supports what you just said, Jennifer, in general. Uh, I guess the heavier the car, 
the more uh, particles the tires uh, produce. Uh, but it's still, it still is, uh, you know, by a magnitude of 2000, it's just unbelievable. I don't think Tesla's explained that the 2000 fold difference. Well, all right. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you to our guests and thank you for watching and listening to The Square Circle. I'm Lawrence Akins. Please subscribe to our channel and like this video and give it a five-star rating on your podcast platform. We'll see you next week.